Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And on today's show, I'm joined by Eric Alper, a Canadian music correspondent. He is also the host of At That Eric Alper Radio Show on Sirius XM. And in addition to that, Eric was formerly the director of media relations for E1 Music Canada before starting his own public relations firm called That Eric Alper, handling PR for the likes of Slash, Snoop Dogg, and Sinead O'Connor. Eric, welcome to the show. I appreciate you taking the time. Hey, happy to be here, man. So how come it's No Sleep Till Sudbury? That Why was, Sudbury? That was, uh, that was the name of my first book. So I grew up in uh, well, just outside Sudbury, and the reason why I picked that one was kind of a nod to No Sleep Till Hammersmith is just a, kind of a play on that title. But um, my first concert was Iron Maiden and Twisted Sister back in 1983. Oh, and nice. so, you know, in anticipation of that concert in Sudbury, uh, there wasn't a lot of sleep to be had by me. As a, as a, as a <laughs> I actually worked with Twitch's sister on their on their Christmas releases that came out and um, with uh, I'll tell you man J and D were like the nicest people that you'll ever want to be a fan of. Oh, so that's cool. awesome! Yeah, that's, so that, cool. That's good to hear. I like hearing that. Was that when was that? Was that recently? Um, yeah, maybe uh, I'm gonna say six years ago. Without looking it up anywhere, I'm gonna say about six years ago. They, okay. uh, they they re-released a couple of, of their um, successful albums, signed on with a company called Artemis Records, and then uh, they released the, uh, I think it was Twisted Christmas, I think, vaguely correct. Yeah, so then, uh, yeah, then they came up here, did a couple of Christmas shows in Toronto, and which was uh, one of the strangest shows I've ever seen. Yeah, I, I uh, do you know Sean Kelly? I do, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Sean was a part of that, and and he was telling me, you know, in addition to it being really cool and stuff, he he uh, he was working with Taylor Dane on that. She was involved in that. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. She was the uh, kind of lead vocalist, and and in that, um, you know, because I think a lot of people our age would remember Taylor from you know her hits in the in the eighties. I think it was exactly. like tell, tell tell it to my heart. Tell it to my heart. The song, and. Uh, so yeah, so she just became this this amazing studio go to singer, um, wow. and uh, got a chance to work with them. So yeah, that's really cool. So uh, what else are you working on? Anything else going on? Yeah, you know, I I'm doing PR for a, a very cool record label called True North Records, which is uh, one of Canada's oldest. Um, record labels and they are home to uh, Bruce Coburn and Murray McLaughlin and Fred Penner among others so just gearing up for what seems to be the the the, the big festival season in Canada where mm-hmm. all of these artists are kind of playing jazz blues folk festivals uh, right across the country so just working on that and um, you know still you know in, enjoying life and uh, you know keeping my head above water and making sure that I don't get into too much trouble very cool. Well, I, I know you're a busy guy, so um, you know I appreciate you taking the time for me today. Oh, happy to do it. Anytime. Okay, Eric. So listen, uh, you've got uh, a very interesting collection of songs here that I want to talk to you about. Your first one is uh, by Genesis, and it's Abacab. Yeah, you know, Genesis is probably my all-time favorite band, but only the Phil Collins years. So I know I am severely in the minority. It's whenever I say stuff like this and then a whole bunch of people come on out and say, you're crazy. It's Peter Gabriel and the rest of the stuff. But I never got into that. I never got into to Prague, 
rock like that. I never got into the whole, you know, sci-fi-ness of, you know, them or Yes or King Crimson. I just, it just, it it never interested me. And uh, maybe because of my age or it wasn't until I was much older that I, I, fully understood and appreciated things like Lamb Lie Down on Broadway. But the Abacab, when it first came out, was one of the first albums that I bought and obsessively listened to. Mm -hmm. And um, looking back on it, it was probably the the step that the band took in order to go from the the progness of of the Peter Gabriel years into the absolute massiveness of the Phil Collins years. And um, yeah, just because that song just kind of kicks it off and is still over seven minutes long. So it kind of pleases those people who like the long songs. And then at the same time for people like me who just want a melody stuck in your head for the next 35 years, which that song has. Yeah, no, I agree. That song is definitely uh, the, you know, transformative pathway between um, the Gabriel years and, and the, the Phil Collins years for sure. Yeah. It's kind of like the uh, gateway you know, for, for I think a lot of people who got into Bill Collins solo stuff yes. when you know when he just exploded and then to say oh wait a second he was also in a band and then <laughs> like they start picking up something like Trespass and they're like uh this isn't the same guy yeah and then uh confusion reigns and people start throwing things out their window <laughs> yeah this tune in particular Avocab I, I just and I guess on the rest of the record but really on this tune I just I always loved how crisp and upfront the drum tracks were in this song yeah, definitely. You know, there's there's um, there was that kind of creation between um, Hugh Pagham, who was a, a really great producer, and he did the Police's Synchronicity, yes. and he he worked alongside the Peter Gabriel solo albums, and they created something called the gated drum sound, which allows the the drum to be just this massive um, noise, yeah. and you can hear it pretty much on that drum roll in in the air tonight yes and just that sound is all over Avocab and it's you know for for a guy like me that loves music and loves drumming and can't do it whatsoever (laughs) like even even keeping a beat on a drum set isn't technically impossible for me to do except on my steering wheel (laughs) in the car but other than that for somebody who's so obsessed with music not to be able to play a single note I kind of love the sounds of stuff because I'm so I'm so fascinated with how people can actually get what they get out of something like a studio where it's completely unlimited. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and it's funny that you made that police reference because when you listen to those police uh, records, synchronicity and everything back, I always notice that that hi hat is very crisp. I, mm-hmm. I I don't know who who produced that, but they always had that very crisp, clean uh, uh, hi hat sound that Stuart Copeland got. Yeah. Yeah, and it was all over the 80s with, you know, in excess and, and uh, you know, New Order to a certain extent where, you know, those bands like Depeche Mode or New Order might have just been more electronic based. Yeah. Um, I think the philosophy was still the same is that it's okay to use the drum specifically as an instrument of note rather than just kind of keeping time in the background. Exactly. Totally agree. Now, uh, speaking of the 80s, this song, your next song, takes me right back to, I believe it was done in 1985. It's by a band called Talk Talk, and it's called Life's What You Make It. 
Yeah, this is um, right after Genesis. This is pretty close to to my favorite band ever. Talk Talk was a band that started off kind of seen as the the lesser known cousin of groups like Duran Duran and ABC and Human League, where they were really really um, uh, beholden to the keyboard and the Fairlight um, keyboard that allowed them to kind of just do all the instruments and very much three minute pop songs, songs like It's My Life and Today and Talk Talk and and on and on. And then somewhere along the lines, uh, Mark Hollis, who was the leader and lead singer of the band, just got very disillusioned with the music industry um, for all sorts of those stereotypical reasons. The record label were telling them what to do. They were on a grind for months, if not years, touring. And they just became strange. They became a little bit more subdued they took jazz elements and put them into their music they were far more um freeform on their music and with something like life's what you make it it still got that pop song elements to it but the drums um and the 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 notes in the songs and the sounds are coming from real organic um instruments and so they they moved away from plugging everything into the computers and started to play a little bit more freely a little bit more real stretching Mm -hmm. out their songs and then the last two records that they put out um spirit of eden and laughing stock are just one of the most brilliant albums i've ever heard but there's no song on there that actually comes close to the feeling that i get with life's what you make it yeah yeah no well said uh and it's funny that you say that about jazz um uh, inflection because that that piano line in the song life's what you make it you can actually there there are hints of that in that piano line yeah you, you know there there's a great jazz line and i can't remember if, if miles davis actually said it i think he did but he would say something like there are no wrong notes if you make That's a mistake true. on a note it's what you do after that note that makes a difference and in talk talk's last couple of albums case they really um used a lot of their time to just kind of play and Mm -hmm. see what comes out of them and improvise a lot and use people that wouldn't normally be associated with pop bands of the 80s like Steve Winwood and and others that kind of allowed them to stretch the boundaries of what we all thought pop music would be. Yes, I agree. Uh, Next on the list of songs that make your skin vibrate here, Eric, is uh, a band called My Bloody Valentine, and the song is called Soon. Yeah, you know, Brian Eno once said about this song that it's the strangest song to ever appear on the top 40 countdown in the BBC. (laughs) Um, My Bloody Valentine, I've got a a really strange but um, uh, but just heartfelt relationship with them was i've liked nothing else that they've ever put out including their eps um except for the album called loveless which is one of the strangest beautiful album that i've ever heard i've read books on the creation of this album read many interviews and i still don't understand the madness that went on (laughs) of leader kevin shield to produce this record there is there's almost something so um, so great about the only clear instrument that you hear are the first four snare beats to the opening song. And then the rest of it is all whales making love underwater. It's, it's, I can't even describe it. Um, but yeah. soon is the last song on the record and it's the most danceable track. So growing up around the club scene in this, in, during this time, it was the one song that, um, 
that the DJ would play from from my bloody Valentine. And just because I had such a, a personal connection and emotional response to this record, it was the one that absolutely got me on the dance floor. And if you've ever seen me dance, that wasn't necessarily a very good thing. <laughs> Well, that's a huge credit to the song, then. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, I wasn't, I was, you know, swimming like hippies and Grateful Dead, but I was, I was pretty much like that was my song, and I didn't care whether or not if it cleared the dance floor. That was my song, and I was going to dance to it. <laughs> well, you, you and me both, brother. Um, yeah, I think this came out in like, was it ninety one? Yep. Yeah, it came out in nineteen ninety one, just alongside of the grunge era. Of Yes. Nirvana's Nevermind and uh, Soundgarden, yeah. Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. So we're going to do a huge uh, right turn here, and we're going to talk about Jerry Lee Lewis's Great Balls of Fire, which I think is an excellent track on your list here. Yeah, this is the first single I ever bought with my own money. I was uh, eight years old, and in 1978, there was this movie called American Hot Wax, and mm -hmm. I saw it by myself in the summertime when I was up at the cottage, my parents um, were watching another movie during, and it was, you know, during those times when like, it was okay to, you know, to let your kids watch a movie as long as you were next door. Um, yeah. And I saw this, this movie, American Hot Wax, thinking that it was just going to be just something. I, I saw musicians like Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis in the ad. And I thought that's, kind of cool let me go see that and i was a fan of music i grew up around music my grandfather had a bar um in toronto that's mm -hmm. still standing but you know i didn't i didn't quite know exactly what all of this kind of meant and the movie tells the story of alan freed who was a cleveland dj who is, is kind of known now for coining the term rock and roll but yeah. he had the first rock and roll live shows and in the first live show, um, he had Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis. And this movie recreates all of that stuff. So they're not using old movie scenes or old footage. They're actually Jerry Lee Lewis, who was like probably 40 at the time, trying to pretend that he was 19 years old. Um, <laughs> it, it, was, it was like when I read about Tom Petty as an mm -hmm. eight-year-old boy saying, when I saw Elvis or are there musicians when they say I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, it changed my life. And that's what I wanted to do. When I saw Jerry Lee Lewis playing great balls of fire on the piano and going into a crouching motion and flipped over the piano stool with his back yeah. leg, that yeah. was it. That was it. That was my heroin. That was my hit. That was everything to me that even still, still to this day, when I, when I just talked about that four seconds ago, I still got those, those little tiny goosebumps on my neck. Um, so profound to see some guy like a monster and, um, uh, a menace to society being so damn cool was yeah. wonderful. And since that day, I've always looked for the people on the outside, not necessarily the rebels that are mean people who do things like this for mean sake but just those people who say yeah these are the rules of the music industry we're just going to break them down and jerry yeah. Lee lewis was certainly one of them even though that he ended up marrying his 13 year old cousin yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. so you know um there's been some bad points yes but you know other than that he you know that that one scene certainly changed my life yeah, yeah, no, I, I think it's cool that you go all the way back that far because for me, and I think we're probably about the same age, I, you know, my um, kind of goosebumps moment were, you know, things in the 70s like uh, Kiss, 
yeah and, and stuff like that but you know this really is is pretty close to where it all started right but it's all the same idea though i remember when i first saw kiss these people aren't human That's i mean right. who who are these people in in makeup and foot high long boots and you know fire breathing out of you know their mouth and gene simmons tongue and you think these these guys are superheroes exactly um, and it's kind of modeled after that. And so I think for, for some of us who so continue to love music as much as, as we do, people like you and people like me, and whether we have a podcast or whether we're in the industry or whether we're musicians, there's always that, that one turning point that makes you just stand up and say, I don't understand this fully, but I like it. And then it's only later on when you can put all of that in context, which I think a band like Kiss has survived so many years without huge selling albums in the last 20, 25 years or massive hits like, you know, most of these kind of classic rock bands, but they still have that, that sense of wonder and that sense of, of innocence that it is still okay to, to do these kind of things and to not do what everybody else is doing. And, and my best friend growing up, in public school was a mm-hmm. massive kiss fan and i didn't understand at all why he loved them so much and it was only er- later on is when i thought you know that must have blown his mind yeah as a, yeah. As a kid who read comic books to see this and say and they play instruments and like you know rock and roll not you know and party every day it's like like w- w- you're eight like you have no idea what this means you have no exactly. you you don't even have a concept of what that could possibly comprehend but you know that it's that it's dirty you know you know that it's like i can't wait until i'm an adult and being able to do you know until i can rock and roll all night and party every day that, that's exactly right and, and and that was the hook i think for me because i was eight years old eric and i remember you know, you know, and I was a huge comic book fan too. So, so it was, it was quite logical for me to be, you know, consumed by a band like Kiss because, you know, music for, for Kiss was almost secondary really for me because I saw this group of, of, uh, you know, real life superheroes as it were. Yeah. And, you know, the, the music was kind of, you know, the soundtrack for that it was really my fascination with these people or i didn't know if they were people really i didn't know if they were <laughs> right right, right. So, right. Or, yeah, and, that, and that and that, and that they, they they still had that that commercial edge to them like i saw yeah. them on the mike douglas show and i saw and or the dinah shore show or you know i read about them in 16 magazine or exactly tiger beat and you think wow okay like this is it, it's just that those moments that that I, I still look for it even today. I don't look at today's pop stars and say, wow, they're doing something completely different. The only one that could even come close to that would probably be somebody like Kanye West. But I think it's more his personality rather than what his music is all about. Yeah, yeah, true. And, you know, going back to the 70s, I mean, you never, uh, rock stars were just, they weren't on TV. There's a lot of mystique and there was a lot of mystery involved. And now, I mean, with the internet, and everything that that mystique almost is lost, you know. So oh, maybe, it's completely maybe, lost. And, and, yeah. and I don't care what anybody says. I know I'm old, but there's something about not revealing everything that yes. that makes those moments um, worthwhile, you know. And I yeah. get it when I'm working with brand new artists, and even I tell them, "Look, man, if you're not on Twitter or you're not posting a photo on Instagram that day, nobody's thinking of you." And um, 
the the problem with that with that mentality now is that it was okay not to know what Kiss was up to or Genesis or the Who or the Sex Pistols or the or the Rolling Stones or or you know Blondie or Talking Heads or anybody that from that era mm-hmm. because we just it was okay you know, yeah. know we got excited look when I grew up in the 80s and I loved artists like Duran Duran I, I had no idea what their hairstyle was like until I, I read it in the magazine but imagine yeah. every single day you were forced to change your hairstyle because you had taken a new photo for for Instagram well that's the Kardashians now and exactly. I think that you just burn out of that of, of knowing too much about them so fast so quick rather yeah. than I know everything there is to know about Genesis and Phil Collins but that's over the course of 35 years of learning and reading and doing whatever but it wasn't all like I know everything I need to know about this band and its history within 24 hours mm-hmm. exactly and I think to a degree that actually kills bands these days it's oh it like absolutely does them. oh it, it absolutely does because there, there, there's nothing less of substance there and the only thing then that the record labels can do and the artists can do is keep creating great music. But it That's seems right. like the pop stars are just leaning towards what what is safe rather than stretching the boundaries of what we think music should be. Exactly. I completely agree. Uh, your next tune, Eric, uh, follows suit, actually. It is by Buddy Holly, and it's called Peggy Sue. Yeah. You know what? Almost for the same reason as Jerry Lee Lewis is... Um, Buddy Holly was the, one of the first artists that I ever kind of really got into. I had no idea about six months into listening to Buddy Holly's um, music that I had no idea that he died. I had no idea about any of his history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just kind of dug the songs and it wasn't until um, really in my 20s that I fully understood how far ahead of the pack he was in terms of his musical production, him writing his own songs when he was working in an, in an era and a music industry where the record label didn't allow the musicians or the, the front person to write their own music. They only mm. wanted cover songs. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, he was just so far ahead of his time um, and was a giant geek, you know, look like, you know, the 97 pound weakling that got With the crack kicked glasses. out of him at the beach, wore yeah. horn rim glasses that I, exactly. that I copped and still wear to this day. And uh, I, I just thought that he was, you know, one of music's big what ifs, like what if he had survived, how much yeah. of it he changed the world. And quite frankly, without Buddy Holly, you don't get the Beatles. That's just, it's just, that's how, that's how big of an impact this guy had on the music world in such a yeah. short period of time too. Yeah. Yeah. How long was his career? I don't know a lot about Buddy Holly. I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 months from start to finish. Yeah. I, it wasn't you know, a long back time. Then, these guys, no, it wasn't a long time at all. I think, you know, I think that single was in 1956 and then he and then he died in 1959. But mm-hmm. he really kind of kicked into gear in the last like year and a half of his life, um, yeah. you know, because we didn't have singles that lasted 16 weeks back then. It was, you know, you if you, you know, if you had a single, you were lucky to just kind of, you know, do what you did. And then you went back in the studio, recorded another single and then another one. And then after four or five singles, then you got to record an album. I mean, you yeah. got to record an album. They gave you permission to go and produce <laughs> a long player. But, you know, other than that, it was a pretty short amount of time, though. Yeah. Okay, so your next song, Eric, is a departure. It's uh, Sinead O'Connor. And the tune is um, it's, uh, I Am Stretched on Your Grave. Yeah, this was uh, a, a single from the uh, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got album. And um, 
uh, Sinead is, is one of my all-time favorite artists that I've ever worked with. She um, was such an amazing soul, um, so kind, so gentle, so soft-spoken, but mm-hmm. um, also had that absolute, you know, kick you in the stomach kind of a vibe too. I mean, I was mm-hmm. terrified to work with her um, <laughs> only because her reputation definitely preceded her. Um, but I Am Stretch On Your Grave was one of these songs that to me merged um, not only, you know, the, the the amazing thing that I loved about Sinead, which is that Celtic um, Irish um, kind of accents that she put mm-hmm. on her music um, with the violins in there, but also using that funky drummer yes for the drums that led to you know everything from the stone roses to everything in manchester that was coming out in the late 80s and the farm and happy mondays and new order and it was like that beat was everywhere public enemy used that beat like thousands of songs and and i thought that it was so cool of her to use that kind of james brown hip-hop element in a song that is kind of like it's just like something that i would hear in a church and um when i saw her perform long after i stopped working with her um she changed record labels and she performed that song a cappella as her opening song so she came out waited till everybody was quiet and she Mm -hmm. just started to sing that song and about halfway through she hit a button on a on somewhere on this tape machine this really old reel to reel tape machine and mm-hmm. that goddamn beat kicked in and it was no just way. on fire and blew uh. the roof off and um cuz i think everybody was waiting for either to for her to sing that song all the way through without any instrumentation or yeah. that the drum beat was going to kick in and once it did like 2 minutes after it normally does it was just like damn you like you knew we were waiting for that and you did it and you knew and you you know once the button hit it was just like this is going to be the greatest concert i've ever seen and it was pretty damn close to it that's great we uh on a previous episode i I was talking to um one of my buddies about um hip-hop and we're talking about um the funky drummer sample from from that james brown tune and uh he told me that that's been sampled more than a thousand times yeah I, i i wouldn't yeah Crazy, and the the uh, drummer Clyde has never received any royalties on that. He receives his usually weekly pay from James Brown to create it, and it's really only like a I think it's something like an eight bar breakdown um, in in the James Brown song, and then the rest of it is just like all like getting back to to the song. So it's just like when James Brown just says, you know, break it down, and then all of a sudden Clyde does that beat, and and you're all set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very cool. Um, were you working with Sinead around the time when she ripped up that picture of the Pope on, on no. SNL? Oh my was God, it after? No. no, yeah, it was long afterwards. It was um, um, in the probably I'm going to say early 2000s. Okay, um, but that's probably why I was terrified of her. I was just Not that she say. was going to rip up a picture <laughs> of me, um, <laughs> but that she just didn't care where you stood it was all about what she wanted and rightfully so as an artist yeah. you have to give them that ability to create what they want to create and be themselves and if they yeah. say that you know water is wet one day and water can't be wet the next day you just kind of nod your head and say yep absolutely that's how you see the world you just go with that 
I remember her, uh, I was back in high school, and the first I'd heard of her was a song called Mandinka. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was a great tune. Yeah, I that was that. during the Lion and the Cobra years. Yeah. Yes, that's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think that album was was pretty, impre- I mean, it was pretty impressionable on me, but I think that that her first album wasn't was kind of rough around the edges, but still pretty militant, though. Yes, um, and it, and you know when she followed it up with "I do not want what I haven't got," it was almost like here is her entire mind with an unlimited budget to create what she wanted to create, um, mm-hmm. and and kind of honed in on what she wanted to do, and that's why I think sometimes debut albums or first albums are always really really cool to listen to, but mm-hmm. to me, even if the second record is a bomb. That's the one that really truly tells you what the vision of the artist is, because if if that first record is, is successful, the record label says, recreate that. And here's $10 million more to do that because we just want yeah. the hits. Yeah. And some artists will say, absolutely. And some artists will say, screw you. There's no way I'm going back on that grind again. I'm going to create what I want to create and I'm going to do it in less amount of time. So you have 18 years, 19 years, 20 years to produce your first record because it's yes. the accumulation of all of your life. And then the second record, you'll have nine months to do it. So exactly. get in, get out, because you've got to go back on a tour that's already booked without you even knowing about it. So that's the record that I'm kind of fascinated with sometimes with some artists is that it may not be their best record in their, in their catalog, but mm-hmm. it's almost the one that under pressure which you know what can you create with something like that and, and your limitations or you know if you're sick of singing all of your pop songs you're probably not going to do pop songs in your second album unless you're just a band who whose job it is to sell records and create memorable pop songs like a bon jovi or mm-hmm. whoever and there's nothing absolutely nothing wrong with that i'm just kind of fascinated with some of those artists that choose to go in a completely opposite direction yeah, no, that, and that's a very interesting point of conversation um, when you think about um, you know an artist's career, and it was quite different back then, obviously, because bands had a lot more opportunities to put records out as opposed to today. If your first record flops, then you're pretty much finished. But you know, back then, and I, I completely agree with you. So when you're thinking about bands back then, I've always said that you know the first two records are are typically you know where the the band's best material comes from. Because you know the fame machine hasn't quite eaten away at them yet. There's you know there's still a, a good amount of integrity there. Yeah, there's there's not a lot of pressure to kind of sustain fame that they may have uh, that they may have um, generated you know with those first two records. Yeah. So yeah, and when you look at bands, I mean like U2 is kind of an interesting one because Joshua Tree, I really like that record uh, a lot more than the others, um, and I think that was their was it was it their fourth or maybe even fourth? yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and, and it's interesting because they, they slow down a lot. Like yeah. if you listen to, you know, your favorite band's first couple of records, like I love R.E.M., mm-hmm. I, I, the first two records are almost like the beat is so fast on them. It's almost like there's no time to get, you know, yeah. to slow down. There's no time to relax. And, and you know, even, you know, like even with the Beatles where like every every song was like, you know, like she loves you, you know, and and keep going and going and going, and it was just all upbeat and high and fast. And then mm-hmm. around the third record, they're like, "Hey, you know, we got a family. I've got kids. <laughs> I took eighteen months off to go buy a castle in London, England, or 
You know, I traveled yeah. around the world, but now it's on my time. And the songs sort of get a little bit slower, a little bit. You yeah. know, and Joshua Tree is a good example where, you know, Boy in War are, are urgent, urgent albums. And yes. then you get to the Joshua Tree and, and it's like things slow down a little bit. Then there's ballads. And that's what makes the song like where the streets have no name so brilliant. And that's when yeah. all the critics will say it captures the imagination of their debut album. Yeah, because it's a fast song. Yeah. You know, um, there's very few bands like, you know, and, and even with even bands like Green Day, you know, for all intents and purposes, a song like Wake Me Up When September Ends, there's no way it's ever on their first couple of records. because no. They just they just can't calm down a little bit to to say what they want to say and, and feel like that they've got the power to do a six minute song like that. But yeah. then American Idiot sounds so great because it recaptured that whole spirit of of what we loved about the band and the clash is the same way you know they yes. kind of kept steady throughout you know throughout their their short career um but you know you listen to like the stones and like the first couple of albums are just like it's it's, it's like this is why they were taking reds you yeah. know and and yeah. all those pills to keep them up at night because they only had 16 hours to record their debut album and then like in the 70s they were like just you know moseying along and oh, kind of yeah. getting into the marijuana years you know well exile like those records are just right. completely recorded at their own pace that's probably the best example of what you're just saying yeah because, you absolutely know, at, good point you know they're almost like a like a dirty version of the beatles but they still yeah. had that same kind of urgency almost as a almost a almost a boy band right you know with the the yeah you know, but then um, you know they got into like Beggar's Banquet later on, and it was like, okay, so now we've we've arrived, and we're going to do this our way. Yeah, exactly. You know, so yeah. Um, okay, so your next song is uh, "You Got the Look" by Prince. I have to include a Prince song on there. "You Got the Look" is um, probably one of my favorite Prince songs from one of from probably my favorite Prince album with um, with with Sign of the Times. Um, uh. I could have chosen the title cut because it's just so unbelievably brilliant telling a story but mm-hmm. you got the look was just one of these uh just one of these all-out balls out rock songs that mm-hmm. um you know with sheena easton I, I i thought was just so um just so cool and so melodic and it's got the the guitar solo at the end of it and he changes the sound of his voice throughout the entire song to me mm-hmm. it kind of just all encompasses what i loved about prince is that he was just such a chameleon in between you know verses not not necessarily in between albums i mean this guy changes up every 35 seconds if he wanted to and just a brilliant musician one of my all-time faves mm-hmm. yeah I, I was always interested in the fact that uh, sheena easton was on this and, and i always thought that she was <laughs> she's kind of a, she's a very underrated performer if you think about you know what she's done over the course of her career with like she started with like morning train if you remember that back in 1981 <laughs> right yeah. like contemporary pop and then she she did a country tune i think with Kenny Rogers we've got yeah. tonight right and then uh i think she did a dance tune called telephone she did sugar yeah. walls that sugar yeah. walls is like an sugar, r&b tune sugar walls is is when you know it was like oh hey Sheena. hey good to see you country girl Awesome. Yeah. Um, you hanging out with Prince? Oh, that's cool. And then Sugar Walls come down and it's like, right. oh, so you're hanging out with Prince. And then, it's, <laughs> and then it, it, it kind of was like, oh, yeah, okay. Um, this is interesting. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, um, not only her, you know, not only the music, but I'm sure, you know, I'm sure they dated. <laughs> oh, absolutely. They did. There's no question there. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Um, this is really interesting. This is the first time I'm looking at your list. This is the first time that this has happened in the history of the show. Your last two songs are by the same artist, which I thought was really cool that you did this. Yeah. You know, the Drive-By Truckers is a band that I completely missed out on until about halfway through their career. And I was really <laughs> loving the Americana years of, of, of music with Wilco and Ryan Adams. And, mm-hmm. and I used to do PR for a label called Bloodshot Records, which, yeah. you know, was one of the, one of the, the great ones out there. And um, Drive-By Truckers released two songs. Um, none of them were singles. And um, you, you got another in Daylight. Um, yeah, both are the absolute heart wrenching, gut splitting songs that um, to me, it's what all about um, a ballad should be um, and just soaring vocals and um, a, a little bit of a different side. Like if, if if anybody were to say, hey, man, like I love the drive by truckers, what songs would you recommend? There's mm-hmm. no way that these two end up on my even big list of songs that represent what the band is. It's almost like the, these two songs are just a complete departure for what they are. But mm-hmm. every single time I hear them, I tear up and I don't yeah. know why. Um, it, it's almost like, you know, Adele makes me cry for relationships yeah. that I never had. You know, it, it's like, I, I don't, I, I feel this, but I personally, you know, I'm not, getting that deep into you know my own personal history but i feel it and these two songs are just so gut-wrenching and they're both on my on my running playlist but every time that i get to it i literally have to stop because i can't it's like you know i start to fluster up and it's just kind of like i can't i can't run you know and and then you know and then I have to just put on a, a, a you know, a screaming Guns N' Roses track on it, just to like, you know, <laughs> just to toughen me up again. But you know, those two songs, "Daylight" and "You Got Another," are, um, are are simply one of one of the greatest songs um, I've ever heard from a band that has a lot of them, but yeah. never like this. Never yeah. in the dirty, grungy, Americana, kick butt rock and roll Southern stuff that they're that they're normally quite known for. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm glad you told me that story about uh, jogging and hearing these songs because I, I just did an episode of this show where I was lucky enough to be interviewed by somebody else. So I got to actually, you know, talk about my songs that made my skin vibrate. And uh, I talked about the fact that, like, one of the songs is called uh, Handbags and Glad Rags. Oh, and yeah, st- yeah. So, st- <laughs> so, so that's. Tom Jones? No, no, no. Well, I think oh. he he does. Yeah, he does a version of it. Actually, he right. does. He does do a version. This song is written in like the late '50s or early '60s, and right. um, Rod Stewart's done it. A bunch of people have done it, but um, the Stereophonics version for me, with the oh, woodwinds yeah. and everything, just really kind of really breaks me up. And so I was saying in 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 my um, my episode that that you know I wouldn't want to hear that song if I was like standing in line at the bank because it actually makes me <laughs> emotional. And it has my number, yeah. right? So the same thing with you in these songs. Like you, you just they have this this uh, this power over you, you know. Yeah, that's exactly. This, the, you're, you're you're in line at the bank. Uh, Brent, would you like to make a deposit? Yes, yes, I, I, I will. Give, give everything, you know. And then you're you're just a mess. You're just a <laughs> exactly. mess. Exactly. 
<laughs> yeah. But yeah, this is, so it's so cool that you just said that because that's exactly what this whole thing is about is, is that power that music has over us regardless of, you know, whether we want it to or not. And these yeah, exactly. two tunes... Yeah, like the, especially exactly, the, and and there's no, and you know what, you can relate that line to like just snobbery in music. It's like there's nothing wrong with One Direction or Miley or Ariana Grande or Bieber. Yeah. Like they write perfect pop songs for for, for people, and you yeah. know if you know it's okay to like Justin Bieber. Like it's okay to like Nickelback. Like they're they're not all encompassing stuff, and and you know with the drive by truckers specifically. You know what? They're not going to be for everybody. You know, my Bly, my Bly Valentine isn't going to be for everybody, or Talk Talk, or the Phil Collins years of Genesis <laughs> aren't going to be for everybody, and that's totally cool. But the the beautiful thing about this podcast is that you can just talk about that one song, regardless of who wrote it or who performed it, because it's it's all connected to a to a moment or a memory that just sets you right back into that time and makes you realize why you love not only that song but why you love music in the first place exactly i could not have said that any better myself that that is a great way to finish off here eric well said um thank you very much i really appreciate this hey no problem man thank you and continue yeah. success with the with uh with the podcast and we'll definitely thank you. talk soon yeah no we definitely will thank you i appreciate it uh, this has been Brent Jensen and No Sleep Till Sudbury with my very special guest, Mr. Eric Alper. Until next time, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>